Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Amen. You guys ready to get into God's Word? All right, Father, we love you and we worship you and praise you. God, we are so excited as we're about to dive into your word. This is your way that you communicate to us. And so we're going to take the next 40 minutes and we're going to commit it and dedicate it to you. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and reveal your word to us. And I pray that not only would we hear it, but we would apply it to our lives and we would see life transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because it's fall and football season's started, I want to share a football story, and then I want to connect it to our text today. July of 1961, uh, 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. Now, the previous season before this had ended with a defeat, and it was a heartbreaking defeat. The Packers literally squandered a lead late in the fourth quarter, lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. And I think that was the last time the Eagles were relevant. But, (laughs) just teasing. The Green Bay players had been thinking about this loss all offseason. For the entire offseason, they had finally gotten to training camp, and they were excited to get started. They were excited to get to work, and they were eager to advance their game to the next level and start working on the details that would help them win a championship. And their coach, the greatest coach of all time, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea. All right? In, his, in fact, in, the best, in his book, uh, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Liv- Vince Lombardi, the author explains what happened when Coach Lombardi walked into training camp in the summer of 1961. He says this, he took nothing for granted. He began to, a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. And he began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who just months before had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize their sport could offer. And yet he started from the very beginning. This is a football. Now, his, his approach to go back to the fundamentals continued throughout training camp. All of training camp, he drilled these fundamentals into the players. Each player reviewed how to block, how to tackle. They opened up the playbook, and they started from page one. And at one point, Max McGee, who was a pro wide receiver for them, he joked, uh, Coach, could you slow down a little bit? You're going too fast for us. He started laughing. Lombardi, had a, he cracked a little bit of a smile, but he continued his obsession with the basics while the rest of the team laughed. And his team would become the best in the league at the tasks that everybody else took for granted. And six months later, the Packers beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing to win the NFL championship. Now, 
If you haven't been able to tell by now, I like sports. I like it a lot. When I was little, I played sports. I'm not saying I was very good, and I actually never played football. I made it about two weeks into the football season. My older brother loved it, and he, he, he played every year. His coach wanted me to play because I was really quick, and I finally convinced me to go out and try out, and I remember that first time I got tackled in football. You know, I ran so good, and I ran probably my very first touch was 15 yards for the first down, but then I got hit hard. And not only did I get hit hard, but the guy who hit me wanted to let me know how much he enjoyed hitting me, and he had some choice words for me. And I yelled. I I said, that is unsportsman. That's that's ridiculous. Are you going to do something about that, coach? And he just laughed, and the next time the same thing happened. And it was two weeks in, I decided football is not for me. I'm going to stick to the other sports. I never played football much, but I loved football, spent hours, or loved sports, spent hours playing sports, loved all of them, basketball, hockey, baseball, and I did love watching football, just not playing it. And I learned early on that fundamentals are important, and any good coach, just like famous Vince Lombardi, will drill his athletes on certain basic fundamentals over and over and over. I remember being at Central Bible College. I got to witness one of the greatest coaches ever. His mom attends this church. He grew up in this church. But Coach Kirk Hansen was known for that, drilling the fundamentals into his players. And that's what he did. And he was one of the most winningest coaches in Missouri. And this is his home church. Come on. There are certain things in any applied athletic event that are required, foundational principles and elements. Enos. Okay, any good teams, good athletes, well, they master those fundamentals. This isn't just true in sports, too, by the way. Here's where I'm going to draw it. I'm going to bring it home. The same truth applies to our spiritual lives as well. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could go to sleep and wake up mature? Wouldn't that be amazing? We would like to wake up some morning. We'd be spiritual giants, be able to apply every spiritual truth to all the different areas of our life. But listen, It isn't the result of wishing or wanting or hoping or thinking or imagining or even positively confessing. It's a result of the fundamentals. Okay, we have to understand at some point in our Christian experience that we have to apply ourselves to certain spiritual fundamentals if we're going to be mature. If we're going to be effective, if we're going to be all that God would want us to be, that's biblical, by the way. The army took it for us. If we're going to be all that God wants us to be, we got to go back to the basics. we got to be good at the fundamentals. You think about Peter. He could have ended his letters so many different ways here. He could have, he could have after all the suffering these people have been through, after all the persecution, they probably would have liked to get a better understanding of all of the mysteries of the God that they served. All the profound mysteries that are still hidden to us, the hard stuff to comprehend about God. Peter could have revealed that stuff to us, right? Would have been a good way to end the letter. So much that Peter could have dived into and yet given us or helped us at least to see deeper and farther and higher into the things of God. But But what does Peter do? He takes us back to the fundamentals. He goes back to the basics. He pulls a Vince Lombardi and he says, ladies and gentlemen, this right here is the word of God. This right here is the Bible. He chooses to reiterate the fundamental attitudes for spiritual maturity to a group of people that are experiencing persecution, which is about to get way worse for them. They're suffering. It's unjust. It's it's unfair. You hear kids all the time say, that's unfair. And what do we say as mom and dad? Life's unfair. 
man, they are experiencing legitimate, horrible, terrible things, and it's all unfair. And yet Peter, instead of diving into the mysteries of God, he takes them to the basics. Now listen, you see, when life is good, in times when everything goes well, it's probably going to be a little easier to conduct ourselves in a spiritual way. But when all adversities come against you like a flood, you better be good at the fundamentals because it's what you do with the fundamentals in the time of greatest stress that makes the greatest effect. So here's what we're looking at today. We're going to look at verse 5. We see it's this Peter dives into this series of imperatives. It's a series of commands. In fact, he starts firing them off like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. And these commands have to do with our attitudes, which are needed if we're going to grow, if we're going to be mature. And I want you to notice I used the word attitudes, okay? Because how we act has everything to do with how we think. Our actions reflect our motives. Peter's talking about spiritual attitudes, which are the building blocks for spiritual growth. He's already taught the leaders in verses 1 through 4. He told the pastors, hey, pastors, feed the flock, Feed the sheep. And last week we looked at those same principles and they apply to every believer in every area of leadership. So it was directed at pastors, those that are leading the church spiritually, but the same principles apply to every Christian. And now he turns in verse 5, he makes this shift. He goes from talking to shepherds to talking to sheep. And this is the first thing. So there's just two attitudes we're going to go over today. And here's the first one. Live a life of humility through the power of God. Look with me at verse 5 through 7. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Likewise, the very first word, look at that, likewise. Some translations say in the same way. Why does he say likewise, or why does Peter say in the same way? Well, all throughout this letter, this is Peter's word for a transition to a new group. Okay, back earlier in chapter 2, when we looked at chapter 2, Peter's talking about all, or talking and addressing to all kinds of different groups in chapter 2. He wants to make sure that we act in a certain way towards those around us, towards those who are in the world. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he said this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as one in authority or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, to the praise of those who do right. All in authority, governors and kings. To those that are in authority, we looked at that already, police officers, government officials, whatever they are, Peter says, submit yourself or subject yourself to them. Then he moves to a different group in verse 18. He says, servants, you be submissive to your masters with all respect. Then you go down again in chapter 3, and he picks up the word likewise. We see that word, likewise, likewise. You wives, be subject to your own husbands. All throughout his letter, he's teaching about submission. Submission is a big part of the Christian life. And so here we are in chapter 5, and we're seeing this word again, likewise. Well, by now we know Peter's moving from from the group he's just been talking about to a new group. He's been talking about leaders, now he's talking to those that follow leaders. He's talking to pastors, now he's talking to the sheep, those who make up the church. He motivated the pastors. I told you, feed my sheep. Feed the sheep. It's a 
pastor's primary uh, responsibility is to make sure he is teaching God's word, not his own opinion, not the opinion of others, but God's word. Now he's telling the sheep that they need to have certain spiritual attitudes. And he starts out with a group. group. He starts out with a specific group, young men. Now, some of you are thinking, why would Peter single out young men? Well, I can't tell you exactly why because Peter doesn't give that in the text. But let's think about it. He's pretty much singled out every other group. <laughs> Wives, you know. Uh, I mean, he's, he's gone over the whole group, and now he's going to talk to men, young men. And I, like I said, I don't know because the text doesn't give us the answer to that question. But I could give you an educated guess. But again, I'm not certain why. But young guys can be really impulsive. Amen. That's right. <laughs> Young guys can be really impulsive, more aggressive. They can be stubborn. And if we're going to be real honest today, a lot of times young men don't like to submit to anything. Now, I can speak from my experience. I know from my own experience, I've gone through stages where I just thought I knew everything. Everything. I'll tell you, life is a journey. The older I get, the more I realize I don't know everything. The older I get, the more I'm okay with it. I remember the first time I went, my very first class in Bible college, I thought I was a superstar. I thought I was like the MVP, and I'm going to be so great in Bible college. Grew up in the church. I know everything. That first day of class, I realized how little I did know and how little of a fish I was in a big pond. (laughs) It was a humbling experience. We need those experiences. The more I get older, the more I'm okay with not knowing everything. The more I get older, the more I tend to rely on the knowledge of older and more mature folks who have been through a lot. In fact, in many ways, that's exactly what Peter is telling young people to do. I love the quote from Wayne Mackey. He says, the error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience. (laughs) And I'm preaching to myself. This was a hard sermon, hard pill to swallow. Peter's saying, hey, you who are younger, find those who are older, mature and wiser, who have been through a few battles and led themselves through a few sticky situations and see if you can't learn from them. And you know what? I I remember growing up, I, I had just graduated Bible college and I was in New York and I was pastoring a small little church. I had stepped right into the lead pastoral role at 23 years old. And I remember at this council, this district council, I wanted to meet this pastor. He was doing so many really cool things, and his church was growing, and it, really a great ministry. And he was a younger guy, and, and his church probably at that point was running around four or 5,000 people, and I wanted to connect with him. And so I had reached out and said, hey, would you have just a few minutes to maybe have coffee with me and meet with me? And he responded. He said, sure, meet me at this time at this, this, uh, in the lobby there at the hotel where the banquet is. So I went at that time, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and this guy didn't show up. And he was real busy, so I'm sure something came up. But I was just sitting there thinking, man, I was so frustrated. And next to me was this older gentleman. And he had a name tag on, so I knew he was with our group, and I knew he had, must have been a, a, a pastor. And he was probably in his early 80s. And I remember he looked at me, and he introduced himself to me, and he just he said, so are you a pastor here? And I told him my story, and, and I told him I was there to meet somebody. And he said, well, I'm sorry that he didn't show. And we just got to talking. And he spent three hours with me that day. We were at that place for three hours. And 
that day this relationship started. And this pastor, he had pastored in a really small town. His church never grew to be over 50 people because there probably wasn't even 200 people in the town. And, and he, he poured into me. It wasn't just that day, but that began this relationship and this mentorship. And he mentored me until the day he had passed away. And today there are so many things that he taught me that I, I rely on today. He poured into me. He had been through a lot. He was full of wisdom, and he turned out to be probably my greatest mentor I ever, have ever had or ever experienced in my life. It was an incredible God opportunity. But the funny thing is sometimes we'll look at certain things, and we want that. We, oh, man, I want this person to mentor me because they know so much or, or they're, they're so successful. It's funny because what Peter's saying is, hey, look at some of these guys who have been through some stuff in their own life and learn from Wouldn't it be nice if the young people just realized that? that guys and gals that have lived life and done life have a lot to offer. They have a lot of wisdom that they could just pour into you if you'd just be willing to listen. And, and this is something I've had to learn in my life. I've had to, I've had to learn this because I told you, young people, we just think we know everything. We, we do. We just think, man, we're, we're young buckaroos ready to go take on the world. Here hear this whole idea how you, how you do this. It's hard, but he's telling young people, hey, you got to submit yourself. Now, let me pause for a minute because I want to bring some clarification. This is a two-way street, and just because this text is directed at young people, there's a lot of texts that are directed at the older crew too, and there seems to be, especially in America, there seems to be this battle between the young people and the, the older folks. The younger folks and the older folks, and there's this battle. We're going to battle over music. We're going to battle over uh, volume. We're going to battle over style. We're going to battle. It's just like this tension that is always existing. And here's, here's what I've learned throughout it, my young and short life, but I saw it with my grandpa. My grandpa was old school assemblies of God. I never saw my grandpa without a blazer on. Never. Well, I did once. I, I, I walked in on him changing once and traumatized me. He didn't have his blazer on. So, but he always wore a blazer. He always wore a fedora anytime, except if he was inside a building. He wore that fedora everywhere. And the bowling, bowling was a, if you were going bowling, that's a sin. To play cards was a sin. If you were to dance, it was a sin. You know, it, to go to the roller skate rink was a sin. Then I saw my, my dad's generation. It was different. You could go to the roller skating rink, but you still couldn't go dance. You know, it, it just, things evolved. And I remember my grandpa would say, the music was the best when we sang hymns. That's what he said, and he would, he would get on my dad's case because my dad, was, they were more contemporary, and they, they would sing the, what's it, uh, Maranatha or the Hosanna stuff that was really big in the 80s and the 90s, and now today we do it different again, and then I became a missionary. I traveled all over, and I realized, man, every culture does it different. I've been in a mud hut before where they're just screaming at the top of their lungs, but they're praising and worshiping God. And what I've noticed in life is that th this battle is, is not really, maybe not so much an age thing, but a culture thing. And we just, we, the young people think, no, our way is the best. We've got to be modern. We've got to do, we've got to, and the, the older crowd thinks their way is the best. And I want to just bring clarification. This is not saying to lead in cultural issues necessarily. This is saying to lead in spiritual issues, to pass on those spiritual principles to the younger generation. And again, it's directed at the young people, so I'm going to speak to the young people. We don't know everything, okay? We have a lot of wisdom in the sanctuary this morning, people that have been through life. You need to open up your life and get some of that wisdom from them. You do. We do. We need that. 
Man, when I go talk to Pastor Hugh up the road, when I spend an hour or two, I walk out, and I'm like, man, that was a classroom. I just had a classroom. Man, Pastor Hugh's been through a lot of things. He's got a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience. If you're new here, by the way, Pastor Hugh is the founding pastor of this church. He built this church. He had a vision from God and a call, and he went and did it and built it on faith. And he did it with wonderful people like you. He says, you need to submit to the proper authorities in your life. Clothe yourselves. Look at that phrase. Clothe yourselves with humility. I once heard a story about an army officer who had just been promoted to colonel. And he was feeling pretty good. He was feeling pretty high on himself. And, in fact, he was looking at himself in the mirror, and he kept saying over and over, well, I'm a colonel now. He would salute himself, and we've all done it. <laughs> And this colonel, he's getting his, he was getting his new office arranged. He's putting together his office, and he hears a knock on the door, and he says, who is it? And the guy answers, it's Private Andrews. And the colonel thinks, man, I'm going to impress this kid. I'm going to impress him. So he picks up his phone, and he starts speaking real loud. Yes, Mr. President, I know, Mr. President. I understand, Mr. President. Yes, I'll get right on it, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. President. Hangs up the phone. He says, all right, come in, Private when the young man enters into his office, the colonel says, hey, I'm really sorry I had to keep you waiting. I'm not sure if you heard, but I had to finish up my conversation with the president. Well, what can I do for you, son? And the private looked at him and said, well, I'm real sorry, sir, but I was just sent over by communications department to hook up your phone. <laughs> Pride makes us look silly sometimes. It's and not only does it make us look silly, but it's the root sin behind a lot of other sins in our life. A lot of our spiritual problems, the root is pride. In fact, pride was at the heart of Adam and Eve's first rebellion. That's why C.S. Lewis called pride the granddaddy of all sins. Peter says, clothe yourselves. Did you know every day we clothe ourselves? Every day we do that. Thank God, too, right? We make a decision, man, today what am I going to wear? Am I going to wear my UC Bearcat sweater or am I going to wear Notre Dame? We make decisions every day, don't we? And here's what Peter's saying. You need to also clothe your soul. Am I going to put on pride today or am I going to put on humility? Because those decisions, they're going to determine the rest of your entire day. Now, Peter in our text, he gives us, he gives us some reasons for being humble, at least four here in our text today. I'm going to go over them real quick. But verse 5, the latter part of verse 5, he says, God is opposed to the proud. God opposes the proud. Nothing could be worse than to have this, an, an infinitely powerful and holy God opposed to you. So don't be proud. <laughs> Quickest way to pick a fight with God is to be proud. You want a resistance from God? Be proud. God hates pride. He hates it. Then again, he says, God, here's the second reason, God gives grace to the humble. So nothing could be worse than having God oppose you, but nothing could be better, better than to have this infinitely powerful and wise God treat us graciously too. And that's what he does to the humble. The reason's not that humility is a performance of virtue that earns grace, but that humility is a confession of emptiness that receives grace. That's why Jesus could say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you look at verse 6. Here's another reason. It says, God will exalt the humble. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
Now, sometimes we don't like God's timing. Look at that. It doesn't just say God's going to exalt you when you think it's time to be exalted. It says God's going to exalt you at the proper time. Sometimes we don't like his timing. We want, we want him to work within our own time frame. We might know God's will, but we don't want to wait for his timing. I see it as a pastor all the time, and I'm going to be honest, I myself, I've been guilty of it. We'll pray to God about something, but instead of patiently waiting and being productive for God and trusting that God is faithful to provide, we quickly step in and try to figure it out ourselves. We essentially, we get ahead of God. This is why when we focus on what we want to happen or whatever it is we don't yet have, we take our focus off God, we start thinking of what we can do to yield the result we want, and we start out by bringing our prayer to God, but because of little faith and wrong focus, we quickly take it back upon ourselves to find a solution. Let me bring it home. Let me, let me make it real clear. I've counseled couples in my life who want to get married, but they have parents who want them to wait. And parents have good reason for wanting them to wait, finish college, just, or maybe even just finish the school year. I've seen couples who get upset with that, don't want to do that, um, and couples, and I'll even ask, especially if they're younger, I'll ask the, the groom, I'll say, do you have a job? Because when you get married, you gotta, you got to feed your, your wife at that point. Mom and dad don't do it anymore. She becomes your responsibility. Do you have a job? No, I don't, but I can get one. I'll get one. All right, well, do you have any connections? Uh, no, but I, I'll look around. I'll get on the classifieds. We don't do classifieds anymore. I'll get online. I'll look. Here's the problem. Maybe it's God's will that they get married, but not God's timing. And I've seen over and over and over people get ahead of themselves and run, run down to the courthouse and elope. They don't want to wait. They don't want to wait for God's timing. So I'm not saying it's not God's will that they get married, but maybe not God's timing. God called me. I get this a lot too. Hey, God has called me into the ministry. I want to preach. Awesome. I want to start preaching next week. <laughs> Okay, that might be God's will, but it may not be God's timing. God might be calling you to the ministry, but it's not his timing yet. You're not prepared to preach. You're not prepared to get behind a pulpit. You need to go and prepare. You need to take that step. You need to work within God's timing. He may want you to get properly trained. He may want you to go to Bible college and adequately prepare. How about this? God called me to find a new job, so I quit mine. Not sure what I'm going to do. May have been God's will, but it was not God's timing. Not only do we need God's will, we need God's timing. And what he says is humble yourselves, and at the right time, he's going to lift you up. God's timing, not your timing, not my timing, God's timing. We're supposed to get married, so like I said, we went to the courthouse. Well, maybe that was the Lord's will, but not his timing. You need God's timing, okay? The right time is God's time, not necessarily your time. So what I would tell you to do today is get on God's schedule. Lay your schedule to the side and get on God's schedule. All right? And then I love this, the fourth reason, verse 7. God will use his mighty hand to care for the humble, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. One of my all-time favorite verses. Now, the, the Greek word for anxiety is merimno, and it comes from two words put together. One is merizo, which means to tear or divide. And the second word is nos, which means the mind. So when we worry, when we, when we struggle with anxiety, it literally means to tear or divide the mind. Isn't that a really accurate description of anxiety? 
It tears the mind. It divides the mind. It tears it. Isn't that, isn't that what you do when you, you start thinking about, man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Your mind is so focused on that that it's going in two different directions. You're trying your hardest to focus on God and his promises, but your mind keeps going this way, and it keeps thinking about, well, what if, what if, what if, what if God doesn't provide? What if God doesn't do this? What am I going to do? That's why James said the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And most of us think of anxiety as this emotion that just naturally arises from uncertainty of life. But Jesus said it's, this, it's intimately connected to our deepest desires. That's what's crazy about anxiety. It's intimately connected to our deepest desires. We worry most about what we're devoted to most. You know, like our kids, our, our careers. And that's why Jesus talks about anxiety by first challenging what we're most devoted to. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus knows that if you're devoted to money, then that's what you'll worry about. If you think that money is, is the one indispensable ingredient in the good life, then you will worry all the time about it, about getting it, keeping it, not losing it. It doesn't even matter if you've got a lot of money or not. Devotion isn't about what we've got so much as what we want. Hmm? And then Jesus asks a series of questions after that, the challenger devotion to money. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Here it is. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, is money really what defines the good life? The point's not that just we shouldn't save for the future. I, I'm not telling you to be crazy with money. It's not the point here that you shouldn't save for the future or buy nice things for ourselves. That's not what the Bible teaches either. It's okay to have nice things. Just that our primary devotion, our primary concern should be about pleasing God and obeying him with our money, and then we can let him worry about the, the other things in life. Anxiety thinks very little of God. When we, the, the, in fact, the Bible would describe anxiety as a sin, and I struggle with that because I get anxious all the time. But the Bible would describe anxiety as a sin. Anxiety thinks too little about God. It elevates the obtaining of other things beside him as the most essential element of a good life. The good life is more than landing the perfect job. It's more than having the big house, more than having the nice car. It's more than the, the good career choices, more than having our kids make honor roll. And believe it or not, it's even more than finding the right spouse. The good life is walking with God and letting him provide everything you need. That's the good life. So being humble means you don't have to be anxious about those things because you've given it all to God. And God is going to take care of you. That's powerful. Dwight L. Moody used to pray this, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. <laughs> Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. Some of you are here right now and you're saying, okay, Pastor Justin, you got me. Man, I want to live the humble life. You've got me convinced to be humble, but what does that really mean? So let me define humility. Here it is. You ready? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, like a low self-esteem or self-image. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay? It's, it's not that you need to hate yourself. It's that you need to consider others and not just yourself. 
See, pride makes you the center of the universe, and God and others are supposed to orbit around you. My dad's favorite quote to me growing up was, Justin, don't you realize the world doesn't revolve around you? <laughs> I hated it when he would say that. I'd say, Dad, I don't know that. I'm pretty sure it does. <laughs> now I say the same thing to my kids. Don't you know the world doesn't revolve around you? Humility says that God, God is the center of the universe and that you orbit around God and that there's room for others to join you. That's why Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, towards one another. So clothe yourself with humility. That's the first attitude. I know humility is not a popular uh, virtue to have in our, in our society today, but it's one that God tells you to have. It's a kingdom principle. In fact, I have spent all my life in church, and I've seen horrible things in churches before. Growing up, I've seen church splits. I've seen big, large groups of people leave a church angry and upset. I've been in business meetings where I've seen brothers and sisters in the Lord fight and cuss each other out. I've seen horrible things happen in church, and most of the time, it centers around pride. God says we're to be different. Walk in humility. Make it a habit. Every day, if you struggle with pride, wake up and pray. God, help me clothe myself with humility today. Let me be a humble person. Then he moves to verse 8. This is the second attitude. Live a life committed to spiritual reality. Live a life committed to spiritual reality. We see this in verse 8 through 9. Look with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. One of the scariest scriptures in all the Bible. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I heard Pastor J.D. Greer preach on this passage, and he shared a story about when he traveled to Nairobi, Kenya, he, he said when the famous Maasai warriors in Kenya notice that the sheep they're tending are suddenly skittish and that that patch of grass isn't always swaying with the wind, they know there's a lion close by. So what do they do? They know not to run, either at or away from the lion. Instead, what they do is they form a group and they start making noise to agitate the lion. Then when the lion attacks, they band together, and he heard one of the warriors who showed a visiting missionary some scars on his chest from where a lion had attacked him. And this is what the warrior said. When the lion fell on me, my fellow warriors fell on the lion. The lion was killed. The brothers were not. The apostle Peter is telling his readers of another lion that's on the hunt for our souls, not our bodies. The word sober meant in Peter's day what it means today, don't get drunk. Be watchful. Pay attention. This world is not a safe place. Nobody gets out alive. All kinds of problems. And your adversary, stop for a moment, your adversary, here's a reality check. You have an enemy if you love God. Get so annoyed with how sometimes the church will paint the devil. We see it in cartoons. He's got a little pitchfork and cute little devil horns. We downplay the reality and the seriousness of our enemy over and over. Reality check. You have an enemy if you love God. If Satan hates God and you love God, you are on the side of the war that is opposed to him. And like it or not, that means you've got an enemy and he's seeking to devour you. 
Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Man, Peter issues this warning three times throughout his letter, and that's not accidental. He's being very intentional. Our life is not a vacation. Trust me, I wish it were. Wish we were all on a cruise ship together, going through life, enjoying good food. However, that's not, that's not reality. Reality is that we really are in a battle. We really do have an enemy. And Peter's going to tell us that if we're not mentally prepared for Satan's schemes, then we're probably going to end up as one of his casualties. It's a reality that sometimes we don't want to accept, but we need to. And here's the deal, and I'm thankful for Pastor J.D. Greer. I'm indebted to him for this next part. But lions, they've got two modes, right? Stealth when they're hunting their prey and roar when they have their prey. Lions only roar when they feel like they have won. Peter says we can hear Satan roaring in every part of the world. If you can't hear him roaring in your life, it's because he's in stealth mode. So think about this. Many Christians were totally unaware of Satan's active role in our life. And it seems to be two sides of this. We either give Satan credit for everything and he's behind everything, or, or we, don't give, we don't take him serious at all. And Peter's saying you need to be aware, you need to be alert. They don't, we, we, don't, we don't pray much. We don't stay close to God. We compromise with sin. We give Satan a foothold. And Peter says, be alert. Be aware. You may think, think about our, our life. Let me bring it home to you. When my child makes bad decisions, bad choices, when they start hanging out with wrong friends, my, my first instinct is just to be like, well, they're having a tough time or they're, they're, they're just a kid. And I need to be... Maybe I need to be a little more uh, disciplined with them. Maybe I need to, maybe I need to do this or that. It, all that may be true, but don't neglect how Satan could be at work there too. Satan might be at work in your child's life. He might be scheming. He might be everything our kids come to us about. I always tell Liz, if if my child's made a bad decision or she's making a, a bad friends, she's going down that path, going down that direction. I take it serious because there's an enemy out there. There's a lion that wants to devour my kids. And I see it every day. I can send my kids to certain events or camps or functions or even at the school. There's this lion that's prowling and he's wanting to devour our kids. They're wanting to convince our kids that the word of God is not truth. They can't stand by it. They're wanting to convince our children that everything is acceptable. It's okay. We don't have to obey this. We don't have to follow this. This is irrelevant. Trust me, there's a roaring lion out there wanting to devour our kids. And so anytime my kid makes a decision that's bad, Liz and I approach it from that angle. He's roaring everywhere. But here are three realities about the devil. Are you ready? We'll go through them real quick. You can't see him. Makes sense that in the Western world, Satan usually doesn't reveal himself by making someone's head spin around in circles. If he appeared like this, then we might actually begin to recognize his presence in our lives. Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's a hunter. And like any hunter, he doesn't want to show himself to his prey. I know that. That's why we camouflage ourselves when we go hunt deer. That's why guys will be so crazy, they'll put deer urine on themselves. That's going too far, by the way. <laughs> It'd be foolish as a hunter yelling out before firing a shot, right? It'd be dumb. Hey, here I am. 
he sneaks up on his prey, working stealthily and invisibly behind the scenes until he finds someone to devour. And Satan could care less whether you believe in him because he's not after your recognition. He's after your destruction. If you're waiting to pay attention to Satan until he visibly reveals himself to you, you're setting yourself up to be prey. Now, knowing Satan's after our destruction, Peter says this, be alert, be sober-minded, because Satan's on the prowl. We should be on the watch. When we wake up to Satan's evil intentions and his, and his schemes, instead of shrugging our shoulders, we need to prepare ourselves for battle. It's the truth. Number two, you can't escape the battle. There are only two temptations in the Christian life that the Bible tells us to flee, sexual immorality and the love of money. In J.D. Greer's, one of his friends, uh, Joby Martin, says this, when it comes to money and honeys, you get out of town. I like it. I'm going to tell my staff that. When it comes to money and honeys, you get out of town. But in every other battle, God calls us to stay, to stand, to endure, and to fight. Isn't that something? You run away real quick from ladies and money, greed. You run away. Every other battle, you stand your ground and you fight. Paul writes, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Our battle with Satan isn't always fight or flight. It's often fight or die. As long as you confess Jesus as Lord and have the Spirit of God within you, you can't escape the battle with Satan because he hates wherever Jesus is loved he insists on attacking hearts of faith until they're destroyed, and he definitely wants to come after churches that want to do something for God's kingdom. And he's going to start with people in the church. You need to wake up to Satan's activity in your life because as long as you're in this world, the battle is going to go on. Escaping the battle is not an option. It's either fight against the attacks of Satan or fall to his prey, become his prey. Number three, you can't fight alone. You can't fight alone. Before, before listing out spiritual armor, we need to fight against Satan. Paul writes this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians 6.10. This is a huge theme in Ephesians and the rest of the Bible. It says, on our own, we are far too weak, far too vulnerable to stand against the attacks of the enemy. We have to pay attention to Satan's activity in our lives because we're completely outmatched in this battle. But here's the good news is that the battle with Satan has nothing to do with your power. It's about God's power in you. If you feel weak, you feel unqualified to engage in this spiritual realm, that's a good thing because you're more likely to lean on God's power in those times. Once you wake up to the devil's activity and your inability, then you're free to depend on God's power within you. So wake up to the battle you're in. It's a battle you can't avoid with an enemy you can't overpower. But because Jesus defeated the power of Satan in his death and resurrection, that's something we need to celebrate every day of our life, not just Easter. And because his power is within you, you can stand firm in this battle till the end. You will make it. So remember this. Satan is strong. Jesus is stronger. Satan's strong, but Jesus is stronger. Listen to what J.D. Greer said. He said, the odds of being attacked by a shark are 1 in 3.7 million. And people still don't get in the water for fear of a shark attack. The odds of a grizzly bear attack are, are 1 in 2.1 million, and people still don't go into the woods. Your chances of being attacked by a supernatural lion is 1 out of 1. And still, you don't live aware of that. 
Peter is really addressed in this passage the two great enemies of our soul, sin and Satan. And sin's the worst enemy, by the way, because the only way that Satan can destroy us is by getting us to sin, keeping us from repenting. The only thing that can destroy us is unforgiven sin, not Satan. Think about that. Now, he may, God may give him leash enough to, to rough us up to the way he did Job or even to kill us the way he did the saints in Smyrna and the book of Revelation, but Satan cannot condemn us or rob us of eternal life. The only way he can do, can do us ultimate harm is by influencing us to sin and keep us from repentance which is exactly what he aims to do. So Satan's main business is to advocate, to promote, to assist, and confirm our bent to sinning. That's why he exists. It's what he does. And to keep us from faith and repentance. He is very active. He's attempting to influence every area of your life. But Peter says you can overcome him. Not because you're stronger than him, but because Jesus has defeated him. He's a defeated enemy. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Revelations 29 tells us that the final battle between Satan and Jesus, and it's not a big fight, by the way. In fact, it's a, it's a little one. It's over. It takes about a second for Jesus to speak and for the fight to be over. You can bring the confidence into your fight that you are facing today. I don't care what it is today that you are facing. God is bigger. You don't need to fear Satan, but you should also not ignore him, all right? You have to fight him, and not with the weapons of flesh, like your personality or your charisma or your wisdom or your resolve. You need the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You don't operate with the Holy Spirit. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Don't do it. You need the weapons of the Spirit. You need to pray frequently. Prayer needs to be something you do all the time. We, say, we have a saying here, it's, it's not just what fuels the ministry, it is the ministry. I would love to see more people come out on Wednesday during our lunch hour, our entire staff prays, but you know what? I'm willing to do, do it whatever is easiest and convenient for the church. I want to just see a group of people coming in here and us just dedicating the hour or two hours to praying. I would love to see that. Pray frequently. Walk, walk in step with God. Be in community. Share your burdens. Join a small group, people. Repent. Confess your sin often. Memorize God's word. Don't just give in and go along with culture. Keep doing the right thing. Fight to stay faithful. I'm telling you what, the Christian life is hard. It's far better than the alternatives, though. But it's not necessarily easier. In fact, following Jesus sometimes intensifies the hardship you live with. But there's more to this life than just surviving a cruel, chaotic world. There is full life in Jesus. And only when we're mindful of the ongoing fight against Satan can we be fully aware of that victory we have in the cross. Then we can band together. We can defeat sin in our lives. We can thrive in hard days because we are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer for this church. I'm telling you, times are going to get worse God has called New Heights Church in Fairfield, Ohio to stand firm, stand strong, fight the fight, and go out and save as many people as we can. That's what we get called to do. It's amazing. This is Survival 101. This is going back to the basics. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you right now. God, we invite your Holy Spirit 
to begin to move and operate in all those that call New Heights Church? Would you move and operate in the hearts and the minds of all of our staff, our board members, all of our, our ministry leaders here at the church, anybody who walks through the door? We want the power of the Holy Spirit moving in their life. We want to sense your presence. We know you're here. But God, would you open up our minds and our hearts to sense your presence in a very real way? God, you are, you are doing something in this church. You are doing something in this community. You are doing something in this country, and you are doing something around the world. We want to be a part of it. So that is my prayer right now, that we would do that. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody says amen. As the worship team.